What a fantastic Bible reader we have this week, right? <laughs> Just top-notch stuff. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. How's everyone going on this wild, rainy day? It's good to see you've braved the weather. I was standing outside before and I heard a big branch snap. It was like, big pop, don't worry. It didn't land on anyone's cars. So we're safe for now, but we'll see. Uh, before, before we get into Acts 26, I, I want to let you know about something that's going to be happening over the next month. Over the next month, uh, we, we want to work towards everyone in church expressing something about the Christian life that's deeply important, a deep love for the Bible, right? So at MCC, we, we believe the Bible is the most important book in the world. Uh, we believe it is the only book in the world that can transform lives because it contains the very words of God. As we read it, we hear God speak to us. And so everything that we do as a church is built and based off what the Bible says to us. So we are profoundly and deeply changed and built up from the Bible as a church. And so what we want is for all of us to express that deep love for the Bible. And you can do that in many different ways. But this month, the way that we would really love for us as a church to begin expressing our love for the Bible is to bring a Bible along with us to church. There's a bunch of reasons why we think this is really important. Uh, Let let me give you a a few off the top of my head. Uh, Imagine the father who who leaves the house to take the family to church and goes, oh, I forgot my Bible, let me duck inside and grab it. Walks back out. What does that communicate to his family and the kids? The church is is a Bible activity. I need my Bible and I love my Bible. What does it mean for you as you sit, uh, I'm about to preach through Acts 26, what does it mean for you as you sit through the preaching of Acts 26? It it means you have more opportunity and chance to test what I'm saying against what the Bible says because you've got it all there in front of you. You don't have to rely on it uh, coming up on the screen. Uh, And so by the end of the month, On July 31st, we're going to remove the Bible readings from the screen and we're going to invite you all to bring a Bible to church and to keep bringing a Bible to church each and every week. We think this is, uh, it's a small thing, but it's a really helpful thing to help you express your deep love for the Bible. Now, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. From next week, we're going to be having a small Bible stall Uh, we'll have a few samples of different kinds of Bible. They'll all be the same translation we use uh, that we prepare our preaching from and our Bible studies from and things like that, the NIV 2011. There'll be a few different samples. You'll be able to check them out, have a look. Do I like this one? Do I like that one? Do I like the words? Do I want the references? And you'll be able to order a Bible and we'll make sure they're delivered by the 31st. So you'll have a Bible to bring to church each and every week. Now, I'm really excited about this. Uh, I'm excited to see... Uh, us being a church that has Bibles with us wherever we go and whatever we're doing, but particularly at church. And I I think it's a little thing, but it's a great thing to just express our belief that God's Word is the thing that changes us. Uh, And so, if you have any questions about it, we'll be talking about it over the next month. Any questions, feel free to come grab me. Uh, This is something that's not just... I'm pushing this at our whole 10am team, uh, Hans and Kate and Jen, we're all behind this uh, and we're all keen to see us express our love for the Word. So that's going to be happening over the next month, we'll be talking about it a little bit. Keep your eye on Facebook where we've got a couple of cool stories of people who love their Bible um, and you'll have a couple of email reminders and things like that.
So it's happening over the next month. Uh, But now, let's turn to the Bible. How about I pray and we'll get into Acts 26. Father God, thank you for Acts 26. Thank you that in it we see Paul testify so passionately about his faith and, and the way his whole life has been transformed by the single historical act of Jesus rising from the dead. Father, I pray that today that same truth will grip us and convict us and that we would see similar transformation in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may have heard about these guys. In the 1950s, there was a a group of missionaries led by a man called Jim Elliott who went to the Amazon rainforest to bring the gospel to a tribe called the Orca Indians. Now, this tribe was completely cut off from civilization. They uh, had never had modern technology come into their tribe. They were actually very xenophobic. They would kill any outsiders who would come to them because they'd seen a past history of outsiders coming into the tribes in the Amazon rainforest and just decimating them. And so they would regularly kill any outsiders who would come near their territory. And so these men, they decided that this tribe needs Jesus. They desperately need Jesus. They've never heard of Jesus before or the Bible. They had their own religions and uh, pagan ideas, but they'd never heard of Jesus and Jesus was the only one that could save them. And so these men flew in and landed on a sandbar uh, at the river near the tribe where they were living. And a short time of no contact later, their bodies were found. Four out of five of their bodies were found, speared to death. They never found the fifth body. Now, these men left families at home. Each of them had a wife. Many of them had children. One of these women was eight months pregnant with their third child. Now, how would you imagine those women, those women react to the news that their husbands have been killed? Their husbands knew the risks. They knew this was a tribe that killed outsiders. Anger? Outrage? Well, Jim Elliott's wife went back to that same tribe and she brought them the gospel. She went with the sister of another one of the men who was killed. And you know what? Those women saw a radical transformation in that tribe. Those murderers became Christians. In in fact, one of the men who who was in the party of tribesmen who had killed uh, those five missionaries actually became so close with Jim Elliott's wife and his son that they called him grandfather. That was how thoroughly and deeply the gospel changed this tribe. But, But really, what drives people to do something like that? What drives men like Jim Elliott to fly into a tribe known for killing outsiders to bring the gospel? What drives Jim Elliott's wife to go, despite these men being the people who murdered her husband, to still go to those same people, the same risk of death, yet go and bring them the gospel? How could someone do that? What would motivate someone to do that? We find the answer in Acts 26. Acts 26 shows us what would motivate someone? Because we see Paul here defending his own radical ministry. We see Paul uh, de- making a defence for all the 
kind of insane things that he did for the gospel. In Acts 26, Paul stands before kings and governors and the cultural elite, and he's on trial for the gospel. And we hear from Paul himself what drove him to suffer so greatly. And we hear from Paul the kind of things that would drive Jim Elliot and his wife and family to suffer so greatly. Now, before we get into Acts 26, there's a little bit of ground to cover because last week we were in Acts 20, so we've got about five chapters to catch up on. I'll be very brief, don't worry. In Acts 20, Paul, you'll remember, is on his way back to Jerusalem but makes a little stop off to have a final meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church. Uh, In Acts 21, he arrives in Jerusalem and Paul's worshipping in the temple when uh, a crowd becomes unsettled at his presence because the crowd knows Paul. Paul was once one of them, he's now a Christian and the crowd turns into a mob and this kind of riot starts happening. So the authorities come in and arrest Paul to put an end to the mob and since then Paul has been under arrest. He's been on trial in front of the Jewish councils, been on trial in front of governors. Uh, after spending two years under arrest with one governor who was secretly hoping that Paul would just give him a bribe so he can set him free, but Paul didn't. That governor is replaced by Governor Festus, who we heard about in this chapter. And Festus doesn't know what the deal with Paul is, so he asks Paul to testify to him, why are you under arrest, Paul? What's going on? And Paul gives another defence of the gospel. And at the very end of his defence, Paul says, you... You're not charging me with any crime. I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar, which was this kind of legal protection for Roman citizens where they could take their course, kind of their, their case kind of like to the Supreme Court, take it to the highest court in the land. But the highest court in the land was to the emperor. So Paul says, I want my case to appear before the emperor. Now, he does this because he's seen a vision from Jesus who said, Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome to preach the gospel. And so Paul has appealed to Caesar. Festus still has no idea what's going on and he needs to give Caesar a reason why he's sending him. So he gets King Agrippa, the king of the north, uh, to come in and kind of advise on the situation. And so King Agrippa wants to hear from Paul and that's where we are in Acts 26. Festus is looking for a reason to give to Caesar, invites Agrippa to hear from Paul to come up with a reason together. And here's Paul testifying to King Agrippa. That's where we're at. That's a very brief orientation. I hope that's helpful, if not brief. Uh, Let's dig straight into it. The first thing we need to see about Paul's defence is that Paul has undergone a radical life transformation, a, a complete and utter transformation of every aspect of his life. We, we see it in the story that Paul shares how uh, deeply the gospel has penetrated into his heart and his life. Let me show you a, a few different ways Paul has changed, just so we get a sense of how thorough this change is. First, Paul was someone who caused great suffering, and now he is someone who suffers much. We heard what he used to do, verse 9, Paul opposed Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, he put Christians in prison and he approved of their death. We'll remember Stephen's stoning when Paul uh, let the crowd lay their coats at his feet as he approved the stoning of Stephen. Verse 11, he, he didn't just let Christians come to him and be killed, he went out and hunted Christians. He went to synagogues, 
found Christians, dragged them out and arrested them. Paul hated Christians. With a deep burning passion, he hated Christians. But that changed. Now, he is a Christian. He's a proclaimer of Jesus. And you know what? He suffers for it. He suffers the same way that many of the Christians he caused to suffer, suffered. He is imprisoned now because of his faith. Paul has been beaten, flogged, shipwrecked. Paul has suffered greatly for his faith. Once Paul was the cause of suffering, now he is a great sufferer. Another change, Paul was once someone under human authority, now he's under God's authority. Verse 10, Paul says he acts on the authority of the chief priests, the the kind of ruling elders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Um, Now, he he would claim that those chief priests had authority from God, but as as we see through Jesus' ministry and through our Acts, they're not acting on behalf of God at all. In fact, they're in opposition to God. So he wasn't obeying God, he was obeying human leaders. But now come with me, Acts 26, verse 19. Listen to what Paul says. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven... Paul received his vision of the Lord Jesus. We heard about it in the kids' talk. We're going to get into it a bit in a moment. He sees this vision. He's given a job and he's not disobedient to it. And importantly, that's a vision from heaven, a vision from God. Paul is now obedient to God, not to human authority. He willingly submits to God now. Once Paul obeyed men, now he obeys God. Third change in Paul's life is that once he misunderstood Scripture, now he believes Scripture. He once misunderstood Scripture. Paul was trained as a Pharisee. We see that in verse 5. He says, I was trained as a Pharisee. Pharisees knew the Scriptures. They had memorized significant portions of the Scriptures. That is, they knew the Old Testament, the Old Testament in our Bible, the Jewish Scriptures. Paul knew them well. But one of Jesus' main critiques of the Pharisees is that although they knew the Bible, they didn't really believe the Bible. They had misunderstood it completely. They thought it was a rule book to please God or or to become acceptable to God. Follow these rules, God will accept you. Jesus says, no, Paul, you have misunderstood the Bible. But now, having undergone transformation, Paul sees the Bible with fresh eyes. Clearly, he has come to understand Scripture is full of hope. Verse 6 and 7, Paul says he believes the promises of God in Scripture. Come with me to verse 22. Look at, look at the second half of verse 22. Uh, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. That's a a thoroughly different understanding of the Scriptures to what Paul once had. The Messiah would suffer and die and rise again. Paul has now come to understand the Scriptures. He's not done that alone. He's been given the Holy Spirit, which was seen throughout Acts uh, works to help people testify. The Holy Spirit also helps us understand the Scriptures. Paul has undergone such a radical transformation Verse 18, he's had his eyes opened. He's moved from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Paul now considers his old life as garbage. 
That's what he says in Philippians chapter 3. His old life is garbage compared to knowing Jesus. His qualifications as a Jew and as a Pharisee, garbage compared to knowing Jesus. It's a complete and utter transformation. There is no part of his life that hasn't been impacted by that transformation. He's like the caterpillar who's gone into a cocoon and emerged as a butterfly. A completely different animal. I don't know if you know, this is one of the most fascinating things in the world, I reckon. When a, when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, they don't start growing wings and their legs kind of disappear. What happens is they completely dissolve into this kind of caterpillar goo. No more organs, just goo. And from that goo grows a butterfly. It's, it's a complete undoing and remaking of the animal. That's what's happened to Paul. Everything about his old life has been completely washed away and changed. And now he is Paul the Apostle, not Paul the Persecutor. Now, what can cause such a radical transformation like that? What, what could possibly do that? Yes, we know the Gospel story, Jesus died and rose again. How could that impact him so deeply? Well, what happened is Paul had a radical encounter. And this radical encounter leads to a radical transformation. And so my second point for today is this. Paul encounters the risen Lord Jesus. He meets him in the flesh. So let's look at that encounter. Come with me to verse 12. And we'll we'll reread a bunch of Paul's testimony here. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Paul's going to persecute Christians drag them out of the synagogues, take them to jail. Verse 13, About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Imagine that. You've dedicated your life to silencing those who claim that Jesus is alive. And then you see Jesus alive. What does that do to you? Your whole purpose for life is just, you've had the rug pulled out from underneath you. That's, that's kind of what happens to Paul. He, he, the basis for his entire life is just pulled out from underneath him. I was wrong. There's Jesus alive and well and talking to me. Paul spends three days blinded in Damascus before, uh, you might remember, Ananias comes and, and, and heals him and prays with him and things like that. What do you think he was doing for those three days? I find that a fascinating question. What did Paul do? Did he just sit twiddling his thumbs? I don't think so. I think Paul spends three days deconstructing everything he believes and building his beliefs back up so that he can make sense of his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And so one of the most significant things he must have done is to reinterpret the Scripture. We've seen how his ideas and beliefs about the Scriptures have changed. I think in those three days he probably spent a significant amount of time wrestling with his understanding of the Scriptures. Paul was waiting for a triumphant Messiah to come. 
Jesus was a man who was killed in shame. How do you put those two things together? How can those things make sense? How do you reconcile triumph and death? Well, Paul comes to realise something. The Messiah, God's great King, who will come to restore God's kingdom, is actually the same as another Old Testament figure. Another person that the Jews were waiting for. The Messiah is also the suffering servant. That's why we read Isaiah 52 and 53. And actually next term we'll be looking into Isaiah and we'll spend time looking at the suffering servant and who he is. So, spoilers. But Paul comes to realise that this character in Isaiah 52 and 53, the one who suffers and dies, is actually also God's great king. They're the same person. The Messiah is the suffering servant. And so, Isaiah 53, 11, after he suffered, he will see the light of life. What does that mean? The servant will suffer, Jesus will die, but he will also rise back to life again. And it makes sense of Jesus' death, Isaiah 53, 6. For those Colin fans out there, you know this verse well. He took our iniquities on himself. He took our sin on himself so that we might be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin took our sin to bring us back to God. Now, I've mentioned Star Wars a few times up the front and I'm going to do it again because I love Star Wars. In the very first Star Wars movie, the main character, Luke, has this old wise mentor. And his mentor says, Luke... The the villain, Darth Vader, killed your father. Darth Vader killed your father. And so, you know, Luke has a vendetta. He's like, I'm going to get you, Darth Vader. I'm going to come and whoop you. In the very next movie, he actually comes to find out that Darth Vader is his father. Now, he, you know, he screams no and is like, can't accept it and jumps into a big kind of chasm to get away from that truth. But, but it really is the truth. And Luke has to come to grapple with the fact that the person who he thought killed his father is actually, in fact, his father. And I think that's a little bit like what Paul's going through. He comes to realise that these two people who he thought were very different are actually the same person. And he has to wrestle with that and grapple with that. What does that mean for him and his life going forward? Jesus' death isn't a defeat, he comes to realise. It is actually the greatest victory in all of history. Jesus' death means the forgiveness of sins, verse 18. Because he took sin on himself, Isaiah 53, 6. In Isaiah 49, which we didn't read today, but it's another one of those uh, descriptions of the servant. We call them the servant songs, uh, a song about this suffering servant. i paraphrase, but it says something along the lines of, it is too small of a thing for the servant simply to rescue Israel alone. So the servant will actually be a light to the whole world. And haven't we seen that through the book of Acts? At the Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Paul's commission, we've seen it here. Paul, you will go out to the Gentiles as a light to the nations. Jesus' death is a death for everyone. Jesus really is the suffering servant. And so he gives Paul the commission, go and preach the good news of the gospel 
to all the earth, so that all might come to see the light of the gospel. Now, we too have a commission. We don't have the same commission. We are not Paul the Apostle. We don't have the work or the role of an apostle. But we do have the great commission from Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's similar. It's very similar. That is our commission. Go and make disciples. If we are to submit to Jesus, our King and Messiah, to the Lordship of Jesus, we need to obey that commission, just like Paul did even though we might suffer greatly for it, just like Paul did. Making disciples consists of two things, broadly speaking, two things. You get new disciples and you grow disciples. You see new believers come to faith and you grow them in maturity to be like the Lord Jesus. Both are critical to the work of disciple-making. To neglect one is to fail at the commission Now, I think at MCC, we are deeply passionate to see people grown to maturity in the Lord Jesus. I rejoice with us and share that passion with you that we want to see the people here come to love and obey Jesus more and more. But here's the thing, I think for many of us, we've overbalanced and actually outweighed our deep desire to see more people saved. Now, don't get me wrong. I know all of us here want to see Christian uh, people come to faith. I know all of us here want that. But practically, in how we speak, in, in how our behaviour shows our priorities, I think many of us might have overcorrected and, and outweighed our desire to see people grown in the faith and, and lessened our desire to see people one for Jesus. And we need to correct that. People are terrible at holding two truths together in tension. We, we just can't do it. We, we struggle deeply, but we need to somehow figure out how to do it because it is our commission. It is what the Lord Jesus has told us our life ought to be about. And so we need to figure out how to do it. I pray regularly that we would be a church that continues to deeply desire for people to grow in their deep maturity, but I also pray that we would be a church on fire to see people reached with the gospel. And so, you might need to ask yourself, do I have that burning passion that the lost would be saved? And does that match my passion that those who know and love Jesus would grow deeper in that? It's okay that sometimes you might focus on one or the other, but thinking broadly over your whole life, does one of those things outweigh the other? Now, you might be sitting here in the audience going, actually, Tim, I think my passion to see people saved outweighs my passion to see people grown to maturity. Yes, you might need to repent too. But I think broadly speaking, as a church, we tend to downplay we need more Christians uh, coming to faith in the Lord Jesus, worshipping Him with their whole life and focus inward on ourselves and say we only need to grow to maturity. There's something we need to repent of. There are millions of people in our city, more millions in our country, billions in the world, They all desperately need Jesus. Does that weigh on you? Just as much as your desire to see each other grown and matured weigh on you? Let's keep moving on. I think a question still remains. Uh, One final question and bring me to my final point. Paul has had this radical encounter which radically transforms his whole life and we've seen a little bit of that. Everything changes when he meets the risen Lord Jesus. 
but we haven't had a vision of the risen Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but I haven't had a Damascus Road experience. You, you may have, but I think for the majority of us, we, we haven't. That's not normally the way we, people are brought to faith. It still happens, but it's not the normal, regular way that we would expect. And so, why would we live such a radical life too? Why would we be so transformed? We haven't seen Jesus. Well, we find the answer in verse 25. But to understand it, we need to look at verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. At this point, Festus interrupts Paul's defence. So, Paul has just spoken about uh, the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Festus, a pagan, uh, is thoroughly unconvinced. Listen to what he says. At that point, Festus interrupts Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning has driven you insane. Yeah, fair enough, right? Paul's saying that a man has come back from the dead. Uh, I think oftentimes, as we think about ancient people, first century people, and compare it to us moderns today, we we think uh, they're uneducated, they're stupid, they're gullible. No, here's Festus going, Paul, people don't come back from the dead. You've lost it. You've gone insane. That's impossible. It does not happen. But Paul's response shows us why we too can live such radical lives, why all Christians can live such radical lives, even if we haven't had a vision of the Lord Jesus standing in front of us. Verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Why should such a claim radically change our lives today? Because it is true and reasonable. Now, we need to talk about truth for a moment, just grapple why that is so significant. The concept of truth has been under attack. And I think we've probably all heard someone at some point say, look, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Uh, we hear it all the time. I think we've probably all heard it. And, and not just like, it's not just the media saying it. This is conversations we have with people. Tim, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. You know, yeah, you, you're a Christian, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Now, what does that really mean? If you really dig down deep, isn't it saying that what's true just doesn't matter? On the surface, it's, it's all about, you know, I have my truth, you have your truth, let's, you know, respect each other. But if you dig down, it's really claiming that what's true just has no bearing on our lives. What's true doesn't matter. That objective reality shouldn't impact how we live. What's true is something that I decide for myself. Isn't that really what it's saying? I determine my own truth. You determine your truth. Your truth shouldn't impose on mine, just like mine shouldn't impose on yours. It would be wrong for me to try to convince you that your truth is wrong, because that's what's true for you. But the problem with that, I think, comes to the surface pretty quick, right? I can't self-determine truth. I, you know... Uh, my truth is that I'm able to fly. If I flap my arms fast enough and run fast enough and jump off a cliff, I'm going to take off. You know, reality is going to catch up to me pretty quick, right? Very quick. 9.8 metres per second per second, right? There's an objective reality that I just can't get around. That is the truth. 
not my opinion on things, that's not truth, that's my opinion and our opinions should actually be uh, uh, argued and, and persuaded against and, and sharpened and things like that. To think that we can't persuade people of our truth is, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing in our society. Now the truth, it exists outside of us, we don't determine the truth, which means we must yield to the truth when the truth contradicts our opinions. I think I can fly. Yeah, probably shouldn't go jumping off cliffs anytime soon, right? And so what is the reality that we see here in Acts 26? The reality is Jesus rose from the dead. That's the reality. Now I'm not going to argue for it and put the evidence for it. If, if you don't agree that that's the reality, I'd happily uh, spend some time with you going through what I think is extremely compelling evidence that this in fact happened. But for Paul, this is true and reasonable. This is just reality. Jesus is alive. And why should we think that's so bizarre? Well, at least that's what Paul thinks, verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? God is the God of the living and the dead. God is the God who created the world. God is the author of all life. Why should we think it's bizarre that God could raise the dead? Of course God can raise the dead. He's God. And He has raised the dead. Paul has seen it. The apostles have seen it. And they died testifying that it was true. They didn't recant. The Scriptures testify to it. Jesus was dead, but rose back to life. Resurrection is reality. Denial is the delusion and Paul understands this and that's why he says the resurrection is true and reasonable. And now this is really good news for us. Why? Because that's our hope. The resurrection is our hope. We, we hope for resurrection too. We hope for the day when we too will be raised from the dead, when we will be given new resurrection bodies free from sin when there'll be no more tears or pain or suffering. And our hope is based in reality. Jesus rose from the dead. Our hope is based on truth. Jesus really is alive. Jesus rose from the dead. We will too. And so, do you feel the pain of of a body that no longer works the way it used to? The resurrection offers hope. Do you feel the pain of the loss of those who you love? The resurrection offers hope. Do you feel like the sin in your life just ruins everything? Resurrection offers hope. Do you feel that longing for heaven, that sense that you don't belong to this world, you belong for the one to come? Resurrection offers hope. So let me finish with what we started with. Why would Jim Elliot go to his death to the Orca Indians? Why would his wife also go to the Orca Indians, despite them murdering her husband? Why would Paul devote his life to suffering so greatly for the gospel? It is because of the solid hope of resurrection. 
is because of the truth and the reality that Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Messiah and he's a suffering servant who brings us forgiveness of sins. Jesus is alive. And so that's why Paul can say what he says in verse 29. Read it with me. Paul replied, Short time along, I pray that God, not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul longs for everyone to come to understand truth and reality, that they too might have resurrection hope. Yes, sure, he doesn't want them to be in chains. It would be nice not to be in chains. He wants them to come to know Jesus because it is truth and it is reality. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Paul's testimony in Acts 26. Thank you that he so boldly proclaims the gospel despite the suffering that he's undergoing and will continue to undergo. Thank you that as he testifies, he shows us the truth. Jesus is alive. Help us to believe the truth and so put our hope in him. Amen. Well, as we witness Paul's testifying of the gospel, I think it's a good time for us to now reflect and enact the gospel in our own lives. So we're going to share in communion together, which is our opportunity to partake in the gospel truths with one another, to remind ourselves of Jesus' death and to proclaim it to each other. And so let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11. The church in Corinth was a church that caused Paul much suffering as well, much anguish inside himself. 1 Corinthians 11:23 For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, Have you guys ever considered yourself preachers of the gospel? Because every time you share in communion, you preach the gospel to one another. It's not that hard, everyone can do it. If you're joining us online today, uh, you're you're streaming with us, Uh, we look forward to sharing this meal together with you in person. For now, you you might just want to reflect on Acts 26. Is is the resurrection reality or not? You might want to spend time uh, while we partake in this together. For those of us who are here, who are not yet followers of Jesus, uh, this is a celebration for followers of Jesus. This is something that Jesus gave his disciples, followers of Jesus, to do. So if you're new to these things, there is absolutely no pressure to join us. You can just watch and observe. As we pass the bread and juice around, you can just politely say, no, thank you. No one's going to press you. No one's going to uh, give you funny looks. That's absolutely fine. In fact, we would hope there's people here who are joining us and checking out Jesus who just want to observe. And so please feel comfortable to do that. All right, before we bring these things around, how about I pray? Father, thank you that you loved us so much 
that you haven't even spared your son. Thank you that you sent Jesus, the Messiah and the servant who died in our place and rose to secure us life. May the truths of the gospel continue to shape us. May they transform the entirety of our lives the way they transform Paul's life and Jim Elliott's life and his family's life. May we now, as we share in communion together, be reminded of and proclaim to one another the death of our Lord Jesus. Amen.